Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Peas in a Pod, brought to you by the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm the editor Paul Jarvis and I'm joined by my deputy Jonathan Davis. Hi Paul. In a slightly longer format today, Jonathan is speaking to a number of those behind the groundbreaking Prince George's County Public Schools P3, looking back on the success of the first phase of that programme. Jonathan will be speaking to Jason Washington, Associate Superintendent for Supporting Services at Prince George's County Public Schools, or PGCPS, John Keegan, Senior Vice President at Gilbane Development Company, and Valerie Blinch, Fengate's Head of P3 Execution. Fantastic. Well, welcome everybody to what is actually a very special Three Peas in a Pod episode, because this is the first time that we have ever actually had the public and the private sector on at the same time. So it's somewhat symbolic. I think it's going to be a good session because we're going to be lifting up what is one of the most important P3s that's happened in the last year. And it's important on a number of metrics. So we're going to touch on a few of them. Of course, I'm talking about Prince George's County's first package of schools. And this is going to be marking the opening of five out of six the last one is coming later this year and now open to students so some really great achievements there so Jason obviously you have been helping lead the team to make this project the success that it's been and we're going to have lots of listeners from other authorities and school boards around the United States who will be looking at how you did it but you did it without the precedent that you've now laid this is a sector which hasn't been done in the United States before So there must have been a lot of learning. And whilst it was your first P3, like I said, you didn't have the precedence before. So start us off right at the beginning. How did it kick? Why did you choose P3? And how did you end up with a P3 that got the relationship that you wanted from it and the outcomes that came from that? Yes, we annually prepare an education facilities master plan, which lays out the order of, I guess, need for all 208 of our schools. And in addition to doing the education facilities master plan, we also brought in a firm that looked at our deferred maintenance as well as asset management deficiencies. What we needed to modernize our asset classes, all 208 schools, came back at we would need roughly $8 billion over 20 years to get to baseline standard, not exceptional baseline. And that really raised a lot of alarms within the county because we are averaging roughly 160 million a year for capital projects historically for the county. That led to a real first of the county council, actually, our governing legislative body for the county to set up a work group. They set up a work group that consisted of school officials, county officials, and executives that looked at different delivery approaches with an understanding that the way that we usually deliver schools is just not sufficient enough for the need that we have. And through roughly about a year of evaluating and getting advisors engaged, there was a determination that really utilizing a public-private partnership, specifically a design, build, finance, and maintain structure was the optimal type of alternative delivery model that Prince George's County Public Schools should utilize. With that approval, so to speak, we then set up an RFP that was two and a half years, I think, start to finish, that we completed and did with PGC ECP during COVID. Uh, There was, I 
a lot of virtual meetings. I don't think I met most of the team until groundbreakings, I think, the following year. And that's really what got it kicked off. And we ended up closing in December 2020. And so that allowed us to really shape out the type of relationship we were looking for and seeking out an expert group that can help us make this happen. Just when you say about the optimal P3 format, that on paper, we often see that that can be the case. And it's obviously part of the mixture of project tools that are sometimes used. But in terms of settling on P3, there are other considerations that people have to make at the same time, including the environment that you are going to be procuring this in. And Maryland has seen P3s in the past, some successful, some not successful. So how do you get that community buy-in on a community that does know what P3s are, and especially in a sector that's quite a sensitive one when it comes to educating your children? It was a lot. It was a lot of outreach. It was a lot of community meetings. It was a lot of trust us. Although it's never been done, trust us is basically uh, the message. And with the backdrop of some real high-profile P3 projects that were strained, to say the least. And so a big part of ours was being as transparent as we could be and really sticking to the reason why we were talking about it. We want to deliver high quality schools. We need to deliver high quality schools. We have the second oldest building stock in the state related to schools. I think we're averaging close to uh, 50 years for schools. And one of the schools that we replaced was 80 years old. Uh, and so so it really was the community getting behind at least the school district is moving and we have to hold them accountable, but we have to try something. And I think it was that mix of a desire to get schools with our desire to lean in and that allowed everyone, and to be clear, a lot of communities did not get comfortable until I would say the first day of school that they actually opened and welcomed students. And so that was the reality, but we were steadfast and continuing to say why we were doing it, what we were seeing, why we needed these schools to be delivered when they were, but it was not an easy in any way sell. And that was evident by just how much community outreach we had to continue to do even after we started the project. On the face of it, you think of six schools, it should be kind of a straightforward build. But like you say, COVID comes in, it's a difficult environment to do projects in any way. John, I thought if you could jump in here and kind of speak to that journey from the private sector side, even from preparing to enter into the race with this project and then having to deliver through COVID and what can be a testy environment sometimes. What was it like for you? What challenges were you coming up against? And was it like working with Prince George's who were obviously also upskilling along the way? Even had there not been the external challenges like the global pandemic, one, one challenge that we might have anticipated but fortunately did not encounter was this project being treated as a typical capital project. In other words, all the stakeholders understanding the why and the what of a public-private partnership and how that makes this project and its initiative different than a traditional capital project. All credit goes to Jason and his colleagues at Prince George's County Public Schools for not only articulating that message, but helping it be understood by all of those who would touch the project from its inception to, well, this week are the ribbon cuttings. That's important. And that's not only stakeholders within Prince George's County Public Schools, but it's within the community all the community outreach, and Jason was really the 
front and center in a lot of those community meetings and articulate fielding questions from and articulating updates to the community, but also, for instance, to the regulatory authorities. These are six projects happening concurrently right out of the gate from financial close to groundbreaking was just a few months time during which a lot of design had to be done, a lot of entitlements, which means permitting and approvals had to be secured. So it was a very high touch process helping those regulatory authorities understand what was about to come across their desk, so to speak, why it was important, what made it different, and why it was deserving of their attention. That really helped avoid what could have been a tremendous challenge where it can happen in public-private partnerships where there's a lot of momentum and excitement behind the why of a public-private partnership. And then once financial close starts and the journey begins, there can be bumps in the road if everybody downstream of that financial close isn't equally aware of the vision and the why. That's important. You know, compounded by the pandemic, significant disruption that created in the financial markets, Van Gate and Gilbane and our team, our debt and equity team being able to achieve financial close in two months time from an October 2020 award to a December 2020 close. That speaks a lot to the market's faith in our team and its ability to deliver, notwithstanding the challenges that were then real. And then just navigating the process, establishing a new normal of operating in a pandemic. Like Jason said, we immediately pivoted to just all online. So the team really isn't having its first face-to-face meetings until several months after financial close. The groundbreakings take place in June of 2021, and then construction's full steam ahead. That really embodies the partnership in a public-private partnership. Because if there wasn't that shared commitment and that mutual trust, so much could have gone wrong. And I think the entire team deserves a lot of credit, but I start with that credit with Prince George's County Public Schools and not only articulating the vision of a public-private partnership, but undertaking such a rigorous process and evaluating it, building the consensus and support for it, and then undertaking the procurement process that it did with a very capable team of advisors to then ultimately arriving and getting us on board and starting this journey together really is remarkable. And I I think about it a lot. We've all thought about it a lot, but it really comes full circle this week with the ribbon cuttings that are taking place as we speak. And you listen to the pride with which everybody speaks. Jason, today at the Drew Freeman ribbon cutting to see those bleachers filled with the students at those schools and how excited they are to be in their new school, in their new environment. That's rewarding for everybody involved. Uh, to see those students so excited and the educators being equally excited and the legislators for really being the tip of the spear enablers in terms of getting working with the state legislature and getting the enabling legislation in place that kicked this whole process off, as Jason had mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more and more you hear about the relationship is the key focus and kind of moving away from the transactional idea of what a P3 has been in the past. In terms of collaboration overall, it is integral to making it work. And Valerie, if you could just talk us through how that collaboration actually manifests, what it enables you to do and not do, particularly in difficult times. What was it like having a party who's actually open to that open relationship and give and take and working together? One of the things which was evident from the beginning was that, you know, everyone was on the same page and everyone had a singular goal. Everyone was very focused 
on a successful outcome for the project, which really was, you know, in this case, to open these schools to the Prince George's community and the families there when we had promised to open them. I think everyone was extremely focused on that being the success at the end of the day that we all wanted to achieve. And so every decision that we made and every discussion that we had together was very focused on ways in which we could best achieve that goal together. So I think there was less so of, well, you know, we're we're interested in this and we may be interested in something else. Instead, we all really put our heads together to talk through the outcome that we were all interested in. I think as well, something that was unique here was that I think Jason and his team at at Prince George's County Public Schools were very open with us from the beginning. And it was refreshing, I think, to have a team from their side that was so transparent about, you know, their goals, the inner workings or challenges that they may be facing, and really helping us understand what they were trying to achieve, but also the reasons behind it. And that really helped us on our side to best be able to help them achieve those outcomes. When we understand, you know, the reasons behind what they're trying to do or, or why they may be making certain decisions, it really helps us to be able to, you know, tailor our solution in order to best help the client. Gilbane and Vengate came together and, you know, have had a very successful working relationship and continue to work together because I think we're very aligned in terms of, you know, the way that we do business and, We both view ourselves, I think, as open, transparent, and collaborative in the way that we work together and with our clients and always want to do things in the best interest of the success of the project as a whole. And I think what we found was that then working with our partners at Prince George's County Public Schools, that we found the same thing in them, which I think was really what ultimately led our working relationship to be so successful. And just unpacking this outcomes, this is one of the real celebrated element of this project is that it's delivered more than just schools. And the impact of the schools has been such a really big part of making sure that this project is a success. So Jason, I mean, when you're putting this project together and you're thinking about what targets to include and and which diverse equity and, and inclusion elements you can the maximum amount that you can get into this project how, how do you go about that process and if you could give advice to any authorities who are hoping to really leverage their projects to give the maximum benefit to their communities how should they go about doing that i think first go with realistic goals the, the big thing for us was really making sure that we pushed, but at the same time, didn't become unreasonable. And and I, I think that's where you lean on your partner to tell you is like, hey, that may be a challenge or, hey, we think it's doable and this is how we can see it happen. What we used was really just historical data around we have a unique classification of businesses in the county identified as county-based businesses, which are smaller businesses, not all small, but mostly small, that we really want to figure out a way to get more engaged. But it was the initial discussion with with Gilbane uh, Building Company around us making it clear to them that just because a company is CBB, they may not be ready to participate in this and that it is at their discretion as they bid out projects of, of how to include those companies and how to break up those bid packages appropriately. And so we we laid out a goal that was ambitious that I can say the PGC ECP team did not bat an eye. There was no 
every three months revisiting the number. Are you sure that this is the number we need to hit? And there was nothing. They signed up and said, we'll make it work. And through that process, you know, we were able to, uh, the goal and requirement was 30%. I think we are well over 35% for the project. And there are still construction activities going on at Colin Powell now. And so for us, it was really sitting down and making sure we did not sign up and, and require an unreasonable requirement that immediately put us in tension with our partner. That was kind of my approach is that none of this is punitive. Our relationship cannot operate that way, period, because we won't be successful. That's how we, we made it work. And folks talk about my outreach, et cetera. PGC ECP had tremendous outreach. Um, I think they had 14 MBE fairs. They had match days with bigger subcontractors and smaller subcontractors. They had a mentor protege program where they worked with over 30 small businesses, both county-based and regionally based. And because it was more than just solving for our requirement, it was actually helping us because they heard us build an ecosystem that can you know, support future growth, that can support future building to play a role in community building is how I look at it. And we appreciated that because it was more than just a number. And then that's when the requirements don't become requirements. That's, that's when they just become what they are. Instead of being seen as like, we have to hit it no matter what type of thing, it was more like, we're going to hit it. Now let's figure out how we can maximize putting together this program for the, in the best interest of Prince George's County and, and Prince George's County Public Schools. I say that the public-private partnership is really a platform. It's a baseline platform to where we think about the objectives that we want to accomplish. And is this the appropriate platform for us to try to make those happen and to use the school system as an extension of the county? We know what the county's goals are. So are there ways that we in this program can amplify that? And that was our approach. And it was met with the team's approach of, okay, we agree. This is how we think you should do it. And because we had that relationship, there was not a lot of rebuffing. We know exactly what we want to do type of conversations. It was like, you have more market intelligence on this than we do. And, you know, let's work together and make it happen. I mean, you can just hear the openness that Valerie was talking about earlier on, about that back and forth between the two sides of the deal to work together and then actually exceed what the target would be if you were just trying to juice the lemon with a real hard stop. I mean, but that does take the other side of the coin, John, if you could speak to this a little bit, to also be working together and help to get the best outcome. What's the nuts and bolts of delivering that from the private sector side? You're obviously accountable to hit those targets. Yeah, I think Jason said it well. I look at it, I think it comes down to visibility and accessibility. So visibility among the contracting community into what the opportunity is. Certainly, it was no secret that we together were embarking upon this six school bundle. But if you are a small contractor, you may not know, well, how do I even connect myself to that? Because it can be daunting. And it is countywide. It's not just in one community. So where does one fit when they're looking to participate and have a contracting opportunity and initiative of that size? So it starts with visibility. As Jason mentioned, those job fairs, so to speak, serve the purpose of communicating the what. 
you know, here's the project, here's the opportunity, here's what's happening at each of these six schools, here's the schedule, here's the size, and then it's accessibility. Well, how those are big projects. How can I participate? As Jason mentioned, it's how that work is then packaged. So it's not just, well, here's a concrete package that's $10 million. It's okay, here's it's broken down into four subsections that are of a size that can be accessible to more contractors, more community-based businesses, more minority business enterprises. So it's really breaking the project down into manageable pieces to encourage the greatest level of participation among the greatest number of firms, but with a focus on community-based businesses and minority business enterprises. And then once those firms have the opportunity to participate and have earned the work, it's setting them up for success. It's not just saying, congratulations, here's your contract, now go. It's fostering, as Jason mentioned, that mentor-protege relationship so that you're coaching them along the way so that they not only succeed on this project, which obviously is important to everybody, but it's setting them up for success on the next project. So that coming out of this you know, 30-month cycle from financial close through delivery of the schools, those firms that have participated, the hope is, and I think the reality is, that very many of them have succeeded, they've grown, they've matured, and they're ready for even bigger and better things into the future. There's a lot to be proud of and thankful for. And as Jason mentioned, those metrics, not only minority business enterprise participation approaching 35%, but county-based business participation, you know, approaching 20%. So, you know, over 50% of the project is minority business enterprise and county-based businesses. A project of this size, that's transformative. Absolutely. Jason, I'm like you say transformative, but you're not done there. You've got another package of schools which are currently out to tender and you're looking to include some direct equity potentially in the next package for the community. What has this project shown? Is the sky the limit in terms of impacts that you could get? What led to the decision to then go to the next step as well? And and what can you tell us about that as we look forward to the impacts that you'll make on the market? As I said earlier, one of the big things that we've heard from our elected officials is really they're looking at policies and approaches focused on the idea of community wealth building. What are things that can be done from all sectors of government and all contributing sectors, private sector, public sector, nonprofits, et cetera, to lift all boats? basically, and to raise, quite honestly, just the level of, of wealth throughout a community. And one of the things that we looked at was that can be addressed in procurement, MBE participation, county-based participation. But another way it can be addressed is through direct investment and bringing and localizing investment as much as possible for broader participation. It is a daunting task. It sounds great. Prince George's County Council passed, I want to say, Council Bill 51, I believe, two years ago now, this coming November, that required any project that had over $10 million in county subsidy had to include an opportunity for equity investment by the community. And so that was already there. And of course, you know, you can call it 
impeccable timing or they were thinking of us, we're the first project that is now coming through and recognizing that we wanted to take the lead on this to see what's possible. But but that's where it's coming from. It really is coming from a place of really, I grew up hearing stories, my parents didn't have it, but I had classmates who parents, you know, invested in GM when they were born. Uh, they, 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 they got stock and back in the 70s and 80s, and that's what they used to pay for school. You know, and it's that, it's that thinking around you make an investment now not to become a multimillionaire or anything of that sort, but is to create a little nest egg that you can provide to family or to loved ones that puts them on a stronger path as they begin their journey uh, forward. As you retire, is something that's there. And further, I think that keeps everyone focused on achieving the ultimate goal. Because I, I think about if we had public investment in phase one, I do believe some of the fun conversations we had at some of our community groups would probably have been muted because there would have been other folks on the other side saying, you know, this is this this is what they're doing. This is why they're doing it. And, you know, we need to keep them moving forward. And, and I think it then puts everybody uh, in the perspective of an owner and they're paying attention to to what's going on and not just saying we have no idea where our tax dollars are going. And so this is, you know, something that we felt was right for us to do. We have the regulatory environment to do it, to try to do it. And and we are excited about seeing what, what happens. I think the biggest thing for us really was just another way of, of showing taxpayers what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do certain things and a level of transparency there. And so, so yeah, so that's, that's what's exciting is this is what being successful and creating a platform has done. Yeah, you're right. It is really, really exciting to see where this can go. And John, I just want to come to you about one of the elements of P3, which is kind of an undersung hero, which is that long-term partnership and the long-term maintenance of these assets. Because we do see, particularly in the school sector, there is huge amounts of deferred maintenance across the board. And we're hearing now in the UK of concrete, which is out of date, which is potentially could cause real harm. And schools are having to be closed across the board. So can you just speak to the role that that long-term maintenance is going to play? And as that private sector partner what that means delivering that and what impact will that make? I think what's particularly exciting is this week we celebrate the ribbon cuttings of five of the six schools, which are really celebrating what's transpired over the past two and a half years. And now we're just embarking upon what's going to happen over the next 30 years, which is this maintenance uh, phase. Uh, I think it's worth noting, it's important to note that that maintenance phase carries with it the same minority business enterprise goals as the development phase carried, which is important because it means, you know, when I mentioned earlier about the lasting impact of this outreach and inclusion, it's lasting in the real sense because that same mindset, that same methodology, those same objectives carry forward throughout the 30-year maintenance term. What it means for Prince George's County Public Schools, you know, they by their own admission would would be quick to say that they've wrestled with deferred maintenance. But Jason, I think that you've got a portfolio of over 200 schools in Prince George's County with an average age of 40 or 50 years. That's a huge portfolio. 
and it doesn't take long before deferred maintenance can just snowball and become just too big to get your arms around. Certainly too big to meaningfully address through the traditional appropriations of state funds year to year to year, because those are always constrained, but the deferred maintenance need keeps growing. So there becomes this divergence that only gets bigger with time. By including the 30-year maintenance component in the public-private partnership, that's something that PGCPS has addressed up front. It's not a 30-year battle, so to speak, to wrestle with deferred maintenance and playing catch-up. It's been addressed up front. Their availability payments that they'll make over the term include the, the capital charge, which is for the, the capital cost of the projects is the, the financing of the capital cost of the projects that have been delivered, but also the service charge, the services that'll be provided over this 30-year term. That's a known number to PGCPS. It's baked into their budget. It's accounted for. And now it's up to our team to maintain the assets according to high stringent performance standards that PGCPS established upfront in our project agreement, tracked via key performance indicators. So there's no ambiguity as to what the standard is by which these schools need to be maintained. And then ultimately, at the end of the 30-year term, there are also prescribed standards that are, that, by which they'll be handed back to PGCPS. You know, so that ongoing maintenance, repair, renewal that happens over the term, that culminates in assets that at the end of the term have a tremendous amount of useful life remaining when they're handed back to PGCPS. That's forward thinking. That's part of what's on one of the unprecedented aspects of this P3, at least here in the United States. And I think that will be something that PGCPS will look not only look back on, but look at over the course of the 30-year term and say, that was a good decision we made. So it all comes back to the students, these 8,000 students that are in these six schools and making set, best setting themselves up for success, best setting them up for success. And that is certainly Prince George's County Public Schools is they're passionate. I've seen it at the ribbon cuttings this week. They're passionate about the students and the opportunities that they want to provide for their students, for them to exceed or to, for them to succeed and excel and pursue their dreams. Absolutely. This is such a great testament to the project, which has been really, really innovative in the way that it's approached, not just the model that is selected, but the way it's done. I mean, we've spoken to it here. It's in a brand new sector. You've got amazing community impact, potentially community equity. In terms of the impact of what this will do to the larger US schools portfolio, it's massive. So from a private sector angle, Valerie, if you could speak about what difference this makes to the industry and from what you've learned from doing this project, how should the industry be preparing to help meet the challenge that could be coming down the line of, of rolling out this innovation at a much bigger scale, potentially nationwide scale? Yeah, so I think you touched on it, Jonathan, in terms of, and, and so did John, in terms of the challenges that so many regional authorities are facing in terms of conditions of schools and, and everything else. And I think this whole thing really goes back to, if you look at it, like the fundamentals of P3, right, which are cost certainty, risk transfer, all of those things, right, that really take those burdens off of the plate of the public sector and put them onto the private sector to allow them, again, to focus on, as John mentioned, the things that they're passionate about, the education of the students, all of the things that they should be worried about day to day, not the concrete falling on their heads or the deferred maintenance budgeting issues that they're having, right? Like all of those things 
need to be taken off the table. And I think this was a really innovative way and take that model that's been used in other places and really apply it here for a successful outcome. I think authorities really need to look at the model and consider, you know, the challenges that they're facing and see how it can be adapted to address those challenges, both in terms of things like deferred maintenance, which we've spoken about earlier, budgeting restrictions in terms of how they're able to allocate funds at what time and how many years down the road, like all of those things, right? Very few authorities, for example, have the ability to pay for something upfront in the way that would get them, you know, a schedule that is attractive, like what we were able to provide here. So I think they really have to look at the goals they have, what this model is able to provide and use it to be flexible in order to address their unique challenges and needs. And really with that, it's about them being, again, it goes back to them being open about their goals and their needs and the reasons behind all of that, and really allowing the private sector to come in and help them with those challenges, right? And provide creative solutions for them and trust them to, again, get them to the successful outcome and that they want to help them get where they need to be. And then there are so many other ancillary benefits which we've spoken of as well that they can work into that model in terms of construction, MBE participation, community success and involvement, local businesses, all of that, right, that comes from it that I think we've seen here that I certainly think is should certainly be replicated throughout the country based on what's happened here. So that's a really great lay of the land. And Jason, I'm hoping if you could close this out here with just a little bit of advice where if there's an authority listening to this now thinking, you know, that sounds exactly like what we need. We heard from John that the run-up can be a really long one. It could be legislative way, way back to try and just kickstart this. What's kind of just a little pearl of wisdom that you can give them from your success about how to make their potential P3 a success? I think first is know why you want to do it. And because the road is long and there are peaks and valleys and all of those nice little metaphors that I can use around this process, but it all really comes down to if you know what you want to get accomplished and you understand you know, what that path may look like, if it's getting legislative changes, if it's getting full alignment and support for all of the stakeholders, that as long as that's clear, I, I think when everybody buys into the objective, it becomes less of a lift and it becomes more of a, you know, it sounds hokey, but a passion project. I, I can say that providing quality learning environments for our students is a universal objective of every school district in this country and providing optimal learning environments for their success is what we all are trying to achieve on the facility side. And I think that recognizing that there's no quick fix, that this is not a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, that, you know, that there are no obligations is misguided. But when thoughtfully put together, this is a dynamic delivery approach. And we've seen is that there are partners that will listen. And, you know, like with any family, you may not agree with everything, but you know exactly where each party is coming from. And I think that's a big piece of it is being very upfront about what you want to accomplish, why you want to accomplish it, and what you will find and what we found, the market adjusts and they beat our expectations and more times than not have approaches and thoughts that we never 
think about because we are usually in the midst of putting out fires and doing things. And we don't have a lot of time to just sit back and think and, and to have strategy sessions upon strategy sessions. Valerie and John are not showing up with repo signs. They're not dictating our curriculum. They're not dictating the times of operations of the school. The, the final thing I will say, because it's been asked, there's, as far as I'm aware, there's no minimum number of schools. There's no minimum, there's no model type of project that need that that you need to have. It really is, you have a need. This is what we need to accomplish. Is there a role that the private sector can play in helping us achieve that goal? And that really is how you start the conversation, not around, I need to find five schools or six schools to build. Like, like in it, you know, and so, so each, that's why it's said and it's a tired trope, but it's true. Once you, when you've seen one P3, you've seen one P3, period. Like that, that it, it will, it will look different no matter what. And, and that's the advice that I would give to other public officials. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Thank you very much, John. And thank you very much, Valerie. It's been a really, really insightful look at a really impactful project. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for that, Jonathan, and the Prince George's team. There was a lot in there, but I think one thing that I thought was quite interesting was when John in particular was talking at the start about the fact that the hard work begins after financial close. And I think that's a really important point that often is forgotten. And I think is something that in the UK as well, we kind of forgot a lot of the time that, yes, you know, it's a big effort, it's a big push to get to financial close, get the deal signed, but actually you've got to get things built, you've got to get, and more than that, you've got to get them run properly and effectively for the next 20, 30 years, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the hard work begins after financial close, but so do the opportunities that come with actually having, you know, shovels in the ground. And, you know, we heard quite a bit about the DEI benefits here. And all that happens with real partnerships and real collaboration and the ability to actually work together with the community. And I think it's a real exemplar of that, of being able to collaborate through extremely difficult times. We mentioned in the podcast about it being through COVID, so much volatility. So that spirit of actually working together to try and pool expertise and resources, I think is a real example. And it's something that doesn't happen in a lot of partnerships. So a lot of partnerships kind of end up in this transactional phase, but this is real collaboration. And you can hear from the way that Jason was talking about the project that they're really passionate about how it's gone. And you can also see that in the fact that they're doing this second bundle, which is now selected a preferred bidder. So I think it's really encouraging to see the hard work that comes after financial close go so successfully and being able to work together so successfully is great to see. Yeah, and you mentioned there obviously the DEI point and I think, you know, particularly for social infrastructure and as we look at potentially this market, schools in particular, but social infrastructure more generally across the US as a potential growth market for the industry, tying it into those local communities is really important. And again, something that I think other countries have not always done very successfully and it's sometimes felt like a top-down exercise that has perhaps disgruntled the local people. And I think getting that buy-in from a local community, tying them into a project 
giving them a financial stake in it. That is really big and really potentially game-changing in terms of how you go about delivering social infrastructure. Totally. And that financial stake is only now increased to an actual 10% equity stake in the project in this second bundle. And like you said, the ability to interact with your community properly and get buy-in, because schools can be a sensitive space, so can lots of other social infrastructure. But if people can actually feel like they're investing in their community, and it's on the good terms that the people in the industry are happy to accept as well, that's another really positive thing. And for me, what I think is the story of this is that there's lots of innovation happening in the P3 industry. And this is groundbreaking in the fact that it's the first in the schools. But it's not like they've cracked this one project and they're just going to repeat it. They're still innovating with this extra 10% equity. They're still looking at how to improve it and refine it and get better and better outcomes. So it's a really positive story for the P3 space to be able to say it's evolving and it's helping to deliver better infrastructure, better schools for students, better education and better inclusivity and outcomes for the community surrounding it. I think it's really delivering on what you hear on a lot of panels of what infrastructure should be doing at the conferences. So I think it's a really good story for the P3 industry. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it shows, doesn't it, from the fact that the second bundle had three strong contenders, bidding teams that were in the running at the shortlist stage. And that only kind of re-emphasizes that this is a project that the market wants to be involved in and that is, A, you can get these good quality bidders along while, B, at the same time, ensuring that the local community you know, has a stake in the project. It doesn't have to be one or the other, which I think sometimes people fear that you're watering down the attractiveness of a project by doing this. And I think what we've seen in Prince George's is that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think this will be the last time we'll talk about Prince George's over the next couple of years. Definitely. That's all we've got time for for now, though. So thank you again to Jonathan and the Prince George's team. 